Hello and welcome to the next episode of Lost in Criterion. I'm John Patrick Oatari Dorkin, and with me, as always, is a man who is a famed grizzly bear murderer. <laughs> I am the Adam Glass, and uh, I only murder grizzly bears when they are emaciated and locked in a cage for sport. Right. <laughs> for sport. <laughs> okay, so I was going to say, I was like, well, you're really more of a a a... a you use the tools at hand to euthanize uh, grizzly bears that that are suffering. Yeah, but it's for sport. No, it's for sport. That's I enter the cage with them uh, when they are too weak and too domesticated <laughs> to, to fight back anymore. This to is horrible. Back. This is taking such <laughs> weird, dark turns. Listen, listen. You want to paint me as a horrible person? I will lean into it. I, um, I'm glad. Uh, it makes me feel better about myself because by the time we get done, I'm like, well, what I said wasn't that bad, huh? <laughs> listen, um, don't kill bears unless you have to. Like, probably you don't have to. And usually, you probably don't have to. If it, I mean, like the number of encounters that people have with grizzly bears that have to turn yeah. deadly is. Like single hand counting numbers, I would say per year. De-escalation by leaving is uh... if that's what you're supposed to do with that kind of bear. It might also be de-escalation by just not moving. I don't know. Different yeah, bears have that. different rules. Not engaging. Not engaging is 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 really the key there, right? Um, and also, anyway. don't leave your shit out so the bears yeah. eat it. Like for real, just don't. Be smart. They hungry. Right. They hungry boys. They need food. Pat, before we get into the movie this week, I want to talk about our Patreon. Patreon.com slash Lost in Criterion. Over there for just a dollar a month, you get access to a bonus episode. It's a non-criterion film that uh, we let uh, let our supporters vote on. You know, I put together a list. Uh, one item on that list is always Kazam, the 1996 children's movie starring Shaquille O'Neal as a genie. He turns yeah. the bad guy into a basketball. And then no, it's amazing. It's an, the basketball. it's an amazing it's movie. It's, it's. Uh, I mean, it's getting more and more relevant as time goes on. Really, it's true. It's true. I love Kazam. If you want to make us watch Kazam or or any other movie, even your favorite movie, because I I gladly take solicitations of movies to put on these lists. Or or you might suggest a specific movie, and I will say, well, let me put a, together a list around that movie. And you can encourage other people to vote for the one you actually want us to watch. Um, and that has worked out multiple times for multiple people. Yeah, um, no, it's actually been really fun. Yeah, like, I've been, really enjoyed the whole process. It's been a lot of fun. But yeah, bonus episode once a month, a non-criterion film. We've watched a lot of good movies, a lot of bad movies, a lot of uh, weird movies over there. And I love them all. Uh, mm. A little extra over there, $5 a month. Uh, we'd like to thank those people on air, but currently we don't have any $5 a month supporters because all of our $5 a month people popped up to the next tier recently. Yeah, they did. They and, love uh, us. And I'm so happy. So, uh, so grateful to them. Thank you so much. Uh, that next tier is $10 a month. At $10 a month, you obviously get everything else. 
and we'll thank them on air here in a second. But at $10 a month, you get something that I think is really actually quite special. Pat makes a piece of art based on one of the movies we watched recently, and I get that printed up on a postcard, write a little personalized note to you, and mail that off. Um, and like I said, we like to thank those people on air too. So thank you so much to uh, to recent recent ten dollars supporters, new ten dollars supporters, Christopher Otto and Jonathan Hape, uh, Adam Speakerman's fairly recent as well, and a couple of long term guys, Jason Westhaver and Michael McGrath, have been doing it for a good long time, and we are so so grateful to all of you uh, at the ten dollar and above level. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So it's fantastic. <laughs> Patreon.com slash Lost in Criterion if you want to get in on that at any level. Like I said, $1 and up gets you rewards. And, yeah, thanks, guys. I like to think that the art rebounded this month. Uh, two months ago <laughs> was a little rough. I was struggling. I, I did I did like the uh, Night on Earth art. It was very good. It took That took a lot of, like, that took a lot of time. I'm Believe sure. it or not, that was a lot. Like, but I was like... Once I sort of committed myself to it, I was like, "Well, this is happening." Yeah, really? sure. It's going to take sure. It's going to take me twenty five hours to make, but damn it, I'm doing it. <laughs> uh, this week we are talking about an Ingmar Bergman film. It might be our earliest Ingmar Bergman film so far. I don't know that we've watched anything earlier. Well, since he's made this. seven million films, uh, he has made. Uh, a it's a little lot difficult to know. It's true. Uh. Sawdust and Tencel from 1953. Um, I think the next. Well, we've seen Wild Strawberries, which is probably we've the seen next. S- Smiles of a Summer seen. Night is actually the next. Oh, I forgot one about watched. that one. From 1955. And I always. The reason I always forget about Smiles of the Summer Night is that in my mind, everything I remember happening in Smiles of a Summer Night uh, happened in Renoir's Rules of the Game for some reason. <laughs> Because, uh, because yeah, I can see that. Yeah, yeah. they're both about about uh, they're both sort of sex romps taking place on right. palatial estates. Um, God, like I remember I really this do. cover. I don't know that yeah. I remember anything else about this movie. Every every detail I run across about Smiles of the Summer Night recently, I thought, wait, wasn't that? And it wasn't. It was like the uh, Smiles on the Summer Night is is the one with the Russian roulette challenge. The strip Russian roulette that we joked about at the time. Wow. And in my memory, that's... That's part of... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because oh, it would man. make just as much sense. Being... Right. <laughs> uh, but yeah. Anyway, uh, Smiles of the Summer Night is a very good movie. I just wish that we hadn't watched so many movies <laughs> that I get them easily confused. Despite I mean, being... that's... I, I like now, despite at this being... point... 16 years apart in completely different political contexts in completely different countries. It's just, it's, well, and that, and like, I, for me at this point, what's happened is, is that essentially I feel like I'm just sort of riding a wave mm-hmm. and like, I'm just, I'm here for whatever one is happening now. But like, at this point, there's just too much and I can't remember. It. The only thing I remember are a few like high points. Like, like I have my list of movies that like I eventually want to buy. And I remember those extremely well. All other movies, yeah. a blur. <laughs> Understood. Uh, this is the very first time that Bergman worked with uh, who would become his long-term cinematographer, Sven Nyquist. Um, 
Nyquist here only shot the interiors. Uh, the exteriors were shot by someone else, I believe uh, Hilding Blod. Um, but there was, according to some commentary I've read, a third cinematographer involved as well, and I don't know that person's name offhand. Well, it's, it's not. I don't see it anywhere. So yeah, it's not listed on the Wikipedia, and I don't have it in my notes. Um, I only know that because I watched uh, I watched this film with the commentary track that is included on the Criterion DVD as well. Um, and that you're a braver man than I. There. Uh, very brave because uh, Criterion's website at the time was really goofing up on my internet, uh, and uh, it took me nearly four hours to watch a ninety-minute. Yeah, strip. no, I've been, I've had that experience. Yeah. Like when, when Criterion Channel decides they don't like your internet connection, boy, howdy! Yeah. Like yeah. you're in for the long haul. Right. It just takes forever. It's like, yeah buffers every 30 seconds or what i spent and i know you ran into the same problem where i spent uh a good hour of my day the other day trying to figure out why i thought my monitors were like i'm on a desktop of right. course my monitor is an external monitor you piece of shit yes. like yes. that's all i got here that's what <laughs> yeah. it is yes. if i don't like it's like you can't play this on an external it's like ah, do i watch it on like do my... i just stare at the video card i don't know what you want me to do here like yeah, my problem with that uh, with that error message was that it was giving it to me on my uh, MacBook while not right, which has, yeah. while not yeah. connected to anything. Yeah, it's I know. Like, literally no wires in it, not even plugged in, and uh, none, just, keeps telling me there's an external monitor. I just I can't disconnect the monitor. It's <laughs> just like snap uh, it off. Yeah, done. But yeah. Yeah, Criterion's website was giving both of us some issues this this week. Uh, but yeah, um, Sawdust and Tinsel, like I said, it's from 1953. Uh, we talked about this briefly before we started recording, and I told Pat I wanted to save it. Uh, the most amazing thing about this movie that I learned from that commentary track is that uh, in... The original American release, which was in 1956, uh, this movie was titled The Naked Night. What? And it was titled The Naked Night because Bergman, and this is as near as I can tell based solely on the earlier film Summer with Monica, which uh, also came out in 1953. Um, but maybe made it into new, into America faster. Bergman in America, until the release of The Seventh Seal, I'm sure, was known for making Swedish sexploitation films. I believe it. But yeah, this was released as The Naked Night uh, because it wanted to play into a reputation that Bergman had for making sex movies. Well, have you read the thing about... Um... Summer with Monica. Oh, yeah, yeah. Exploitation film presenter uh, Kroger Babb purchased the U.S. rights to the film in 1955 to increase excitement for the film. He edited it down to 62 minutes and emphasized the film's nudity, renaming (laughs) it Monica, the story of a bad girl. Like, I mean, I guess we understand why he got that reputation. Right. Uh, But, I mean, I like the idea, like, what it really tells you, what it actually tells you a lot more about America than it does about anything else, right? Oh, Which is like, certainly. oh, this movie has nudity in it. It's a sexploitation film, right? It's like, right? You know, like 
people are sometimes just naked. Like it's a thing that happens. Right. You probably do it every day. Right. Right. Um, yeah. That commentary, by the way, is uh, is done by uh, film critic Peter Cowie. Just to just to cite our sources, but uh, but yeah, it's on the Criterion DVD, and uh, it was generally interesting. But that was definitely the most interesting. Yeah, thing. I'm I really learned. glad to know that. <laughs> Can you imagine what a weird turn Seventh Seal would be if you like walked into a theater <laughs> expecting a exploitation film? <laughs> <laughs> seventh seal it's like wow like what a wild ride that would be holy cow uh, oh, i wonder how many people ended up walking out of the, like, the seventh seal being like uh, what is your seventh seal sexploitation title what would you what would oh you my rename God. when did we when did we turn seal? into the my brother my brother uh <laughs> uh i mean see that's the problem though i don't because they're always so goofy, though. Right, right. The titles are like, because like my your brain, you know, for me at least, when you say like, what's your sexploitation title? My brain would like tries to turn it into a pun, which just makes right. it sound like a porno. But right. that's now, not what that's not what sexploitation films are, right? Like they're, they remember they remember this one's called Naked Night. So let's let's maybe play <sighs> with that. I what's sticking with me, and it might be too explicit. Is uh, pilgrimage to orgy? But, yeah, it's uh, too. You're you're on the right track, but you're yeah. that is too explicit. Like, um, like probably like pilgrimage to lust or something. Probably maybe, maybe. closer that to that. Yeah. Um. <laughs> well, I'm glad we had this talk. I'm glad we had this talk too. Um, sex games with death. Yeah, uh, there you go. That's it. There we right. go. That yeah, could be. There you go. Um, now it's turned into like one of those weird ones that's on the edge between like a sexploitation and like a like a, a slasher. <laughs> there you go. Uh, I think in watching this, what I was most surprised by is the fact that it came out before La Strada. It just feels so much like an early Fellini film, too. Right? Me. Yeah. No. Yeah. You're right. <laughs> uh, but do you think? Do you think like Fellini's not like? cribbing off this no right? no 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 no. though, not, though I mean, like this idea though like i'm not this idea but like this possible, style a little bit possible I style i will say one of the other things i learned from the commentary is that uh bergman was for a time very candid and then increasingly less candid about the idea that this is very much unconsciously inspired by a 1925 film called variety it's german um Oh. I know nothing about it. Uh, but when Cowie started talking about that, I thought he meant Variety Lights, which would have really made sense to everything I was feeling, but I don't know. Variety is uh, is a film I'm not familiar with. Yeah, um, me neither. I don't have yeah. any idea. Yeah. Uh, it's also, particularly in the initial flashback sequence where we're talking about the clown and his wife and the soldiers at the beach, that high contrast, montagey, hyper uh, silent film uh, close-ups feels very Eisenstein to me, and I feel yeah, like that's I would agree with that. Too. That's definitely true. And then yeah, like it, I, especially when it, it's sort of a little bit experience. Like it, you mentioned silent film, but how it's it it goes in a really fascinating direction with like how sound is applied and like yeah. It, it's I, I it's almost kind of indescribable like where like 
it's silent and then it'll have bursts of sound suddenly. It's very that that initial right. sequence like set me up for a very different movie. <laughs> right. Right. Honestly, I was like watching that, I was like, is this what this is gonna be? Like, okay, I I'm here for it, let's do it. And then it didn't yeah. it then it wasn't that. Which right. is kinda wild. Like it's like this is just a one off first whatever five minutes of this film. Right. And it's so it's so striking that even by the by the end of my first viewing, I kind of forgot that it was framed. Like we see, we see Albert wake up and climb out and climb up with the, uh, with the driver of the carriage and the driver of the carriage says, Hey, remember this thing that happened to our clown to set up this as a flashback. But really in my mind, that was just, it was just the first scene was, was this. Yeah, me too. Like, I mean, yeah, I remember that they said that, but then it's like, that that that's a one like that's a save like yeah. it's just throwaway like well yeah we can't just launch straight into this crazy nonsense because people won't watch it or whatever right. right they do frame it up yeah it's uh it's interesting uh just stylistically the music also you know you you talked about the way the sound plays but the soundtrack likewise you know it uh it comes and goes we get the soldiers laughing is audible but then no one else's actions are audible um, yeah it's it's i mean yeah people literally don't make sounds it's yeah. it's crazy like i mean not in a bad way it's just like i don't know what his i really like i wonder what his kind of goal was like i mean was it just to make it feel more ethereal cuz it's a flashback absolutely it was meant to be dreamlike as if it were a dream even Right. And and but, in a and in a manner Albert while while hearing this is perhaps dreaming these because he when we get back to Albert at the end of this sequence he's waking up while sitting beside the driver, right? He's Right. He's half asleep anyway. Right. Uh Well, it's also important to keep in mind that like he's I I kind of wonder if the sound thing is part of the fact that like he's recounting a thing that didn't actually happen to him. You know what I mean? Like Right large chunks of that don't actually involve Albert. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's just the clown and his wife. Right. For, for large chunks of it, which would mean it's a sort of like secondhand story anyway. Right. right. So, so part of the ideological reason that this is in the movie is that Bergman views everything else, all the other stories in this film as variations on this humiliating sequence. Right. That um, this movie, you know, at the end of last week's episode, I said this because it's how Criterion describes it as a battle of the sexes, um, which a lot of Bergman's relationship films get described as. And I think the the concept of the battle of the sexes is perhaps foreign enough to you and I that, that we never really get that reading from a movie. Right. Um, but uh, it's... Albert is active in the clown's humiliation, right? Yeah. Uh, and then Albert himself goes through humiliation. And each of these stories of humiliation, and then Anna goes through humiliation, and uh, Albert's ex-wife has already come out the other side of her humiliation, right? Right. You know, she's She's actually built herself a life after her husband ran away to join the circus. Um, you know. So it's it's a series of humiliations and of uh, moving beyond, of offering forgiveness, of reconciling. Right. 
um, or not. You know, it's, you know, it's it's part of part of Albert's humiliation is that he can't reconcile with his wife, right? Right. And well, yeah, I mean, right, but she's not. He's not. Well, that's. I mean, that's a whole other thing, right? Because he humiliated her, and right. then he essentially, hum- she essentially humiliates him back, right? To, by like not taking it, like, you know, he comes begging to get taken back, and she says no, right? And and it, you know, it's 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 interesting that it's framed as a battle of the sexes because, like. I can see, I understand where that reading comes from, but that reading frames it as though the fundamental interlocking structure here is their sex, not their sort of just humanity. You know what I mean? Like, in the sense that, like, everybody in this movie humiliates everybody else in this movie. Like, gender plays a component, or sex plays a component in it in the sense that, like, there's definitely that interplay is stronger between like the, the sexes, but it is not by any means the only form of humiliation that happens in the film. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I, I understand why it gets framed that way. And I think it's a value. It's a valid reading of it. Right. I would just say that like, I think it probably cuts deeper than that. Right. It's just that sex is used as a tool for humiliation a lot. Absolutely, absolutely, and like that, and that's true, true to life. To life. So, yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they're they're humiliated in ways beyond sex, right? Right. You exactly. Know, the interactions with the police in the streets taking their horses, um, you know, Albert's interactions with the with the director of the theater, and the, and that just phenomenal reason you suck speech is that you'd do the same to me if you were if our positions were reversed um yeah it's it's a series of people humiliating each other and it's it's interesting because it's not even necessarily because they overtly lack the tools to relate to one another it's not this isn't out of cruelty right it just it's the nature of who they are and their interactions and the nature of life to a certain extent is is seemingly what Bergen's trying to say. Right. But which has been oh go ahead, sorry. But at the same time, the end of that is we do get a happy ending in that they are reconciled. And even even before then that is modeled. The clown and his wife have reconciled, right? Right. We see that because, however, but we also long ago, do learn that the clown. I mean, like it's it's interesting because Bergman does bother with the clown, especially to remind you that even though you've reconciled, those wounds are still there, right? At, with the clown, like later on, and I think right. that's a valuable thing to talk about in a in a in this sort of context, right? Because in, in the movie is because. You can move beyond it, but it doesn't mean the thing didn't happen. Right, right. Uh, and it's just an interesting thing that Berman points out because the way the clown talks when they're in the, especially when they're in the carriage together with the gun, is like, right. The clown kind of very quickly goes through the entire stage of his emotions with regards to his wife. Like, 
you know what I mean? Like he's he's drunk or whatever, and he's talking about like, well, maybe you should put us out of our misery. And then like when it actually comes down to it, he's like, no, that's not what we want. You know what I mean? It's like right, right. It's you know, it's that uh, we talked about night on Earth, uh, you know, a few weeks ago now, um, episode wise, and like two months ago <laughs> as far as yeah. our recording schedule goes. I, I mean, I remember it only yeah. because I had to draw a picture about it. Yeah. Um and uh you know the the final sequence of night on earth is uh Helsinki Norwegian right? right but it's it's that same sort of drunken exploration of of raw emotion you know and that's sort of indicative of a uh, a certain type of swedish film of of not not even necessarily Swedish film so much as uh, Nordic film, right? Right. Uh, well, I, and I and it does. Yeah, Nordic. I mean, it does happen other places. I think it's more maybe more common. Yeah, with those kinds of films <laughs> that we've seen. But yeah, once they got beyond the just making sexploitation films, they got into right. Yeah, as soon as they got they moved past nudity, they were able to right. really dig into their emotions with alcohol. <laughs> I joke, but of course there were plenty of Swedish exploitation films. You know, that's yeah. We've watched a few of them, right? I mean, yeah. It's just I just I think it's really funny. Yeah. Like that this this whole lead up to this is just very funny yeah. to me. Yeah. Um, I just yeah. now from now on, like if I ever get into a conversation with somebody like not you about film, if it ever, I just like the idea that someday you're gonna just, you're gonna be in a position where somebody's gonna bring up Ingmar Bergman. You mean the sexploitation filmmaker? Is this a thing you're going to be able to say now, which yeah. is just really delightful yeah. to think about? <laughs> Absolutely. But yeah, this is it's it's a raw movie in a lot of ways, and it's um, it's great. And yeah, it's, I mean, it's not it's not pleasant uh, right. to watch that way. Like it it right it is uncomfortable. Right, and even. No, even in that that quick opening sequence, I feel like we understand Agda, the wife's psyche here. You know, she's she's a little past her prime. She wants to feel desired, so she goes mm. down to bathe nude in front of the soldiers. And as soon as her husband shows up, she realizes why that was a terrible mistake and that it was a terrible mistake, not in anger, but in actual shame that what she's done. And she immediately starts covering herself and her husband carries her away. Um, not, and again, not in a, you're my property, I'm claiming you way, but in a legit like rescue from this psychological situation she's put herself right. in. Right. You know, and that's part of the fallout that Frost talks about later, how how that hasn't wholly healed because, you know, they're not really dealing with what initiated the whole sequence to begin with. You know. Right. And then with with Anne and uh Franz, the uh the actor, you know, it's its own other set of you know, everything is about being desired, not necessarily sexually, but so often it plays out sexually into the individual stories here. But even the the circus itself, you know, it is about being desired, right, right, and and having yeah, people and, play at desiring you, and then pulling it out from uh, pulling the carpet out from under you, 
right? And that's that's how the town treats the circus, and that's how everyone individually meets with their romantic or sexual partners throughout this movie too. Yeah, and that is you know that's the most interesting part of this to me is that it 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 isn't focused on just sexual humiliation it is really it is about a yeah broad... i mean it, it is just about hu- it's just about humiliation really <laughs> right, when it comes right. down to it and and it's a, it's a it's a it's fascinating to discover and this movie kind of really puts it into light how raw and of an emotion that is yeah like we all know like fundamentally from our own experiences that that is a very raw and like really difficult to deal with emotion but like at the same time, I think it's very easy for us mentally to trivialize it. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, we we all know what it's like. Like, humiliation is like, it's that sort of thing that you you can think twenty years later about something you did that was humiliating, right? Like, it'll it just exists in you forever, right? Uh, so it's very raw and really powerful, but then and like can radically change the way you behave, right? Like, it it's its effects on you can dramatically change the kind of person you are. As in a way to, because it humiliation is fundamentally different scales of trauma, right? Like you, depending on how much it affected you, sort of how traumatic it was, and but it's always traumatic, right? Trauma era humiliation is traumatic, right? And um, what this, but with the 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 term, the sort of way we think about the term all oh, humiliation or humiliated, still feels trivial. Right, you know what I mean? Like when you say, "Oh, uh, he was humiliated," it's stronger than other words would be. Like than, for example, embarrassed. But still, when you think about it, you don't think about something that like dramatically alters the way people see the world. But it does, and this movie really does a good job of putting that into light because these are just people who are doing this trauma to each other. Like you know what I mean? Just, right. Sometimes, just as a matter of course, some of them are very malicious. Franz is very obviously malicious. Oh yeah, he's a malicious actor who purposely humiliates people. Like it's clearly not like I say a malicious actor, not in just his job, but like in his behavior. Right, right, right. But um, he he is an active humiliator. Like th- it's very clear that she is not his only victim. You know what I mean? Like she's like he. Like just his behavior really paints him as being obviously the sort of person who takes joy in humiliating other people. Right, right. But most of the other actors in the film, like most of the other characters, humiliation is much more subtle in the sense that it is a sort of matter of course of life that they do because they're not considerate right. of each other, uh, and and they don't, yeah. or they don't care to be. Franz is exploitative in that he sees Anna's vulnerability, leans into that vulnerability, uh, and then coerces her into sex, right? Right. Um, and then well, further humiliates and then, and then her. uses it as a weapon against right. her. Right. Like, but but like, I I would argue that his pattern of behavior, like he talks about other women. Oh, my yeah. guess is this is a pattern of behavior for him. Right, like, like no one would, no one would choose to go to a circus and then humiliate their sex partner. As yeah. as like right, a, like I did it on accident. You know, be I mean? like that's right. a choice you made, and like, right. probably not. I you know, 
that and you to do it in front of do... another woman he's clearly trying to court and like she's right. into it's... it and that is just beyond... very fucked up yeah. yeah i don't know where i don't know what that means honestly right except for the fact that they view they both obviously part of the pro- part of what makes it so obvious and easy is they are they are circus performers right like right even this woman that he's with imagines her as a lower form of human essentially right like uh, this person is not important is not despite the fact that he's trying to court her oh well that doesn't matter because she's just a circus performer you know what i mean there's there's definitely elements of that throughout this right like in other elements of the movie too right the way that you know, the way people treat the circus is very these aren't fully human people uh has that sort of feel But yeah, yeah, it's just, but like especially the circus performers within their own realm are not humiliating each other really on purpose as much as they are just not considerate enough about what the effects of their behavior will be. Right? Well, they're uh, they're very familial, right? They right they aren't necessarily humiliating each other on purpose so much as the relationships they've established are ones where humiliation happens right just by a matter of course just by inerrant word just by well and yeah exactly and that that comes partially becomes from the fact that the closer you are to someone emotionally right the easier it is like you know the easier it is for that to happen right like although they're not just dealing with an errant word right like there's you know they are doing things that are strong like more extreme than that but that that closeness amplifies that humiliation right like um you know they are i mean they are inconsiderate pretty extremely right like i mean it's not just like oh i you know i didn't say the right thing it's like well i i decided to go see if i could uh get some money out of this guy or whatever or like i decided to go see if i could reunite with my wife which is a weird humiliation that like albert does on does to anna but like she never knows right like she knows she knows in her own head right like she she talks about it right which is where like which is where albert hits the nadir of our sympathy for him in that he has he has accused on uh of doing the exact same thing that he uh, he has Absolutely. been doing yeah right yeah except that he failed at it and she well she also she did not succeed um in any meaningful way right there um, it's possible to both win and lose at the same time right right uh, i mean she did get that gold so in that sense that is a success but that gold is ultimately worthless. Isn't revealed to just be. Uh... Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's and of course it was because the way he's presented it, it's obviously right. a lie. Yeah, so. and then which which makes it the whole thing for her. Like when we talk about her as a character, sadder, right? Is that like her motivations in some ways are based on just like a need to like sure up her existence right to like her boyfriend lover is going off to essentially try to like get his and and she wants 
something's somewhat more stable, right? And he's offering money, and so she's kind of her need allows her to be exploited easily, right? Because she wants to be more secure and safe in her sort of, and they all do, right? Like that's the whole. That's everybody that we encounter in the circus is also like things are not going great, like. So they they're all you know they want to be feel more secure and safe, uh, at least from a sort of financial standpoint. Yeah, yeah, it's right, and that's another aspect of it—the financial humiliation of this whole situation. You know, they right they've lost their costumes. Uh, their their only source of food is killing the bear, which you know isn't even made explicit as he kills the bear, but as part of the conversation they have in the round table, uh, you know, after the rainstorm earlier, right? Right. Where they suggest <laughs> that bear is a delicacy because they're they have no food. Right. Everyone's everyone's. Uh, lice infested and and like that's another thing you know the uh the theater manager jokes that uh will they will they come back will all our costumes come back infested and we've already established that yeah probably because everybody's got lice that's and scabies right yeah well i mean that's the thing that and you know then we get into the fact that like that that extends outward right because like these people are humiliating each other but like the world is humiliating right. these people, right? Like, the world has put them, and it's not just fate, although I, it, with Berman it could just be air quotes fate. Uh, but, like, they have no food. They have lice, they're infested. They have no way to make food, get money to have food because their costumes are ruined. Like, but, like, it's easy to imagine that as, like, fate, but it's also the system that they live in right like right it's also an indictment of the fact that like they have no recourse for any of these things right like they don't they can't i mean they go to this stage you know this uh director of a of a you know what you call it a play right yeah i don't know what his exact title is i forget but um theater owner i suppose is yeah i guess so right like to get these costumes but that that's not a that's not a viable recourse that's just an idea they cooked up and hoped it would work you know what i mean like that's you know not to turn this to our favorite topic but i'm going to <laughs> the, the, it's right there a world that does not provide its people with ways to lift themselves out of you know problems not even lift themselves to lift them out of problems is a world of humiliation right like right oh you don't have costumes well you can't get any feel be humiliated right like you oh you need food well you're not going to get any you're you know what i mean like that that's a world that these people are living in where they the society itself will humiliate them yeah and they're probably not the i mean it's probably more intensely so because they are circus performers, but Here's, like this is not a society that has recourse for nor other people either. Really, I have been thinking about this movie and this thing I'm about to say 
completely compartmentalized separately for okay. a week and a half. Okay. Last week, uh, at our recording, but uh, May 29th, <clears throat> 2020, uh, things really, really went to hell in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, post George Floyd and his murder in Minneapolis police, uh, there were, there were uh, demonstrations all over the city. Um, and they continue to, to the day of this recording. Um, all over the country, uh, but uh, but particularly May 29th, Columbus police started a riot. It was a police riot. There's no there's no right. other way to describe it. They initiated violence all over the city. Uh, part of that, and where this where this comes back to this movie, uh, that night, uh, they confiscated a bus. A school bus, a converted school bus. The school bus was painted in multiple colors. It oh had yeah, its I name emblazoned on yeah. it called Buttercup. It had the Squidbillies on one side of it, the Cartoon Network <laughs> right. creatures. Uh, they confiscated this bus, and this was a bus of traveling uh, jugglers, like yeah. street circus performers. They make, they live on the bus. You can see coming out of one of the windows of the bus is the uh, exhaust for a wood-burning stove. Right. And they, the initial police reports for this, Columbus police tweeted out a picture yeah. of these yeah. kids getting arrested. And a <laughs> idea, <laughs> they tweeted out that they had found knives and axes and clubs and rocks and that these guys this was some sort of antifa riot bus that right. had been brought into the city to uh encourage the riots and fund the riots and supply the riots but they were jugglers so they had clubs they lived on the bus so they had cooking knives and meat cleavers well, and they might be juggling <laughs> knives too like that's a thing right. I mean, also knows, true right like also true that's a thing and you they, juggle and Probably they, fucking chainsaws uh, for all I know. They, as I already said, have a wood-burning stove. So, yeah, they have a hatchet. It was on right. top of the pile of wood by the wood-burning stove. Uh, and on top of that, they were, they were stopped for blocking traffic when they were following directions of the police officers who were telling them, you need to go this way to get out of downtown right, right now. So it's all a mess. And these people have gotten death threats because... Columbus police lied on them, and then that went viral. Marco Rubio has retweeted about the, the yeah, I saw that <clears throat> the Columbus, yeah. Ohio Antifa riot bus, and yeah, they they went downtown to offer a safe space for people to get off the streets and receive a little medical care, and maybe that was ill advised, and maybe it wasn't right, but they have been utterly humiliated now. Uh, because officials have lied about who they were, what they were, and what was found. The rocks right. were crystals. Like they're just a bunch right. of friggin' hippies on a bus. Yeah, well, well, exactly. Like I mean, well, and it, and and it, and to a certain and, and a part of that is the fact that that is a like 
while they are not formally like of a class that is considered like lower, like in the sense that like this, we're not talking about like actual Romani or something like that, but there's still that sort of con- like connotation, right? Like they're they're traveling people, right? Like they're yeah. It's even easier for things like the government to shit on these people who aren't who don't really belong anywhere, right? Like traveling jugglers. Well, we can just. Now, now we've turned them into some sort of, yeah, some sort of scapegoat for like right. the violence. And they're not even the outsiders. City, right? The bus, the bus is registered for in Vermont because it is easier to register bus conversions in Vermont. That is universally right. okay. true. And if you, uh, t- t- for whatever reason, that is a thing I already knew because I'm I'm, I'm impressed because I'm really people, impressed. I I have I have interacted with people before who wanted to do home conversions on school buses and it is vermont is the easiest state to get a converted school bus certified as roadworthy uh but they live in columbus these are even locals right Right. so yeah but like i mean that doesn't change the appearance of what they like the police see that like certain public officials see that and they're like this is a group of people whether it's like sort of a an internalized bias or if it's like an actual purposeful plan it seems like the police is straight up just a plan uh this is a group of people we can shit on who in society have even less power right to defend themselves than your average person we usually shit on you know what i mean like because they they even if they're not traveling performers they give they have that appearance right they have that appearance of people who don't belong anywhere right uh, it's interesting to learn that from Columbus I my basically only interaction with somebody like telling Mark Rubio to go suck a dick basically <laughs> right. was the only right. interaction I've had with this story as a reply still, to him it is still yeah. literally obvious what they are even from the Columbus tweet the Columbus oh absolutely tweet. like I mean like I saw the picture and I was like well a, what the person in this tweet <laughs> telling Mark Rubio to suck a dick is saying is clearly true yeah. I don't need any more information <laughs> It's clearly a circus bus or something to that effect. Right. It's a it's a neon bus. Yeah. very clearly hand painted. Like it's just right. like, come on, guys, right. what are we doing these are, here? These are these are these are literally they are probably uh, inexperienced and therefore bad actors, but they are not maliciously bad. Right. <laughs> um, they are. They are just a bunch of kids. Who go around to kids' birthday parties and and yeah, they yeah, live on the bus and that's weird and it's outsider and that's that's uh but but all over and it this feeds into that and it corresponds to a starting of rumors of Antifa riot buses being trucked in to every major city and it and it's based on uh you know, literally every mayor in the country said, oh, these were all outside agitators. I've talked to the police. They were all outside agitators. Uh, and and that was for two days. That was the, uh, the thing. Yeah. The thing to say. And then on Monday, every major city in the country announced, oh, yeah, all of the arrests in the city were of people who live in this city. Uh, and on top of that, even even if that part weren't true, 
what sense does it if they're all outside agitators you cannot have a nation full of outside agitators you right i i like, that was always the that for that two day window was the best part for me was the yeah. idea that like we all just shifted like one right, city right, over right like that there was some giant game of round robin where everybody right. like all right well okay we're from columbus so we'll head over to uh like uh philly and then the yeah. philly people will head over to ba you know what I mean? it's like right what are you talking about? Boston, Chicago, Chicago to San Antonio, you know, all the, all the way, all around. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's like, what are you talking? That's crazy talk. What are you talking about? Like, right. And again, and again, it, it all boils down to uh, literally, obviously, bald face lies from public officials uh, to humiliate specific people to try and undermine a national movement. And right. we can't let it work. Right. Uh, and like, like even I saw, a, I saw a video from a uh, Cleveland photographer who was covering one protest and he was trying to say outside agitator things. And he even, even it was like, oh, we were at the free stamp and then we went to such and such. And then there were a bunch of white people who showed up with backpacks full of rocks uh, and then it's like a side note. He says, "Oh yeah," and they set up a they set up a medic station, and they're helping anyone who was hurt. Uh, but like, obviously, they planned for people to be hurt because they had a medic station. It's like, well, no, that's not. <laughs> Medics don't just show up. <laughs> right. not... Like I, I like, like what's, yeah. what's wrong? And he's like, "Oh, they." And then they, the guy who seemed to be in the lead of it, who was standing right beside me, um said, oh, we need to go to Tower City, but he pointed in the direction of the free stamp, which is the opposite direction of Tower City, so obviously they weren't even from uh, from Cleveland. Like, Cleveland... <laughs> I lived in Cleveland for five years, and if I was standing anywhere downtown, I could not point to where Tower City was. <laughs> like... Yeah, I, could, I mean... I could point to the free stamp, because I know where the free stamp is, and <clears throat> because the free stamp's iconic. Uh, Tower City, you know, I lived... I never went to Tower City. It is feasible in my mind for someone to have lived in Cleveland for four years and not go to Tower City and not know where Tower City is because I, I am in that. You you did do that. That is I a did thing that. you did. That is a thing, <laughs> right? But yeah, yeah. So so to get all that, you know, the the humiliation of of traveling circus performers, literally the lowest tier of their. Even even the lowest tier of their social class, right? And right. and the the theater manager makes sure that we know that, right? Uh, right. But being being publicly humiliated, having their having their mode of transportation taken from them, and then being painted as criminals in the middle of uh, the city, you know this parts wait, parts wait, of the plot wait which one are you talking yeah. about parts of the, the plot movie of sawdust and tinsel happened yeah. in columbus two weeks right. ago well, exactly it and and that's what i was trying to get at is it like right. that's systemic you're doing that as a society on purpose right you need people like you don't need it like i i say need in the sense that like a society feels like it needs it but like the idea that there we talked about this i guess like last week yeah yeah with that berlin alexander plots like the idea that like society desperately desire somebody below them to shit on like all the time right and like well we can all shit on the traveling circus performers like yeah. that's that's a societal universal we all get to do this because they're the lowest tier of the people we can like in sweden in 19 or whatever year this is supposed to be that you could possibly conceive of 
You know, right. it, it's just, it's, yeah. I, I mean, and that's, and then we, so we get back to the idea of humiliation, right? Like it's just society has decided also to humiliate these people. Right. 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 And, and actually society's humiliation of them leads to many of their other humiliations, right? Like it, it has this knock on effect where they do things that, um, not all of them, like some of them are just purely them just not being super nice to each other and stuff right, and, right. and things like that. But right, when you think about the positions they're put in, some of the decisions they make are based on the fact that they've the humiliation that's already occurred has put them in a position where they have to solve a problem. And they don't have any resources to solve that problem with because they also don't have a network of people to rely on. Right. Uh, outside of their own group. So now what I'm saying is, is the next time somebody suggests that you can solve the world's problems by creating really um, sort of intense community, inner community relationship programs where like people are helping each other. So one has to keep in mind that there are people in this world that don't exist in your network. Right. But don't exist in that other town's network either. Right. And if you base everything on the idea of well, well we'll just all help each other you and we don't need structures to make sure that that happens in a way that everybody is helped you right. create a system where there will be people who are right but not even included. even within american society those those structures that are meant to help even the lowest well, let's be aren't clear. Here. America doesn't to have hardly lowest. any structures that are meant to help anybody. Right. Like like America no lacks cares entirely. Yeah. Yeah. No one actually what, what I'm saying is, is that like the actual the, impoverished. This is one of the reasons why you do need Politically. frameworks to make sure that the things that help locals also help the people who aren't right. local that need help. Right. right. Like right. and that sort of stuff. Uh, like did did I tell you the story? I'm going to tell you something very sad. Okay. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm going to tell you something very very sad. So back, I think this was during the flooding. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it was. Yeah, last year, my town flooded. Okay, like in a really severe way. Uh, businesses were destroyed. People's homes were destroyed. Things were trashed. Uh, not my specific area. I think this was during that time. I I may getting confused about exactly what the time frame this was, but there was news reports that uh, local leaders had turned away homeless people who had shown up at shelters because they weren't tax-paying residents of that area. And it turned into a big a big thing. But it, it, it oh, reinforced for me an idea that, like, it, it, it was a really sad... Th- now, luckily, we... we the the grand scheme of things is that no one died because of this, as far as I know. I I think I'm pretty sure my memory is fuzzy about this, but I'm pretty sure no one ended up dying because of these very poor choices that were made. But keep in mind, those choices were made. Yes, those individual leaders in that area made that choice, but those leaders in that choice that area made that choice based on a system and a set of structures that implied that these homeless people were essentially worthless in their area. Right. And that is a thing that a society, as a society we chose to say, not as a thing that that one person decided to say. Right. Yeah, that one person acted that thought process out, 
but the idea of treating a person who is homeless as less than because they don't participate in your particular local structure of of financing the government and so you know what i mean is is i think that the society as a whole decided right so i mean then aftermath is that that's the sort of stuff that like at least gets lip service paid in japan so there was the aftermath was a, a clearly stated thing put out saying like look guys i mean it was it was in political language it was like do not deny access to resources based on like you know yeah what but that doesn't change the culture that went into that and it's very unlikely that that guidance will have a long-term effect on the way the homeless populations in japan are treated when they go to seek like local services right you know what i mean and especially emergency like that was an emergency it was an emergency service which is even more i mean like just paints it in starker contrast because they are you know it, all services are essentially emergency services but ones where there's literally life and death at the moment feel do tend to paint it in starker contrast right like inability to access other services like the ability to get uh money or food are also life and death services right but uh like the flood is coming please let me in your door does tend to paint that in uh starker yeah. contrast yeah um and it's it is um it's just you know but like you know they put out that guidance and what i was trying to kind of where i was going with this mentally is that that guidance exists and so for the the term of the memory of the people who were in charge when it happened yeah maybe it affects their behavior going forward uh you know if there is another emergency they that particular leader who essentially got chastised might not make that choice but it doesn't change the culture that generated that idea. And so the next leader will probably revert back to the old way of thinking about it, right? Like, because they, they weren't particularly chastised for doing that. You know what I mean? And, and it, it's just a, it's a thing that this caused to mind for me because, you know, it, it, it's, it's the same sort of idea, right? Like, well, this person's an outsider. They don't have a right to access what we have to offer in terms of support. And, you know, was it during the flood? Now I'm trying to remember. I remember reading it in the newspaper when we talked about it, but now I'm like, does it, it had to have been the flooding? I don't know. I just remember it was in the last year or so that this happened, and I remember right. a lot of things happening in the newspaper. Now it's like, was it the flooding or was it what, another disaster? Ugh. Hard right. to remember. And it's it's... Would you say uh, also plays interesting into, you know, in Columbus, I'm part of a mutual aid network now that has popped up in or at least become much, much more prominent in uh, response to um, the pandemic. And uh, but the way that generally functions, it's it's is by its nature a gatekeeping because we're not we're still at least at the start of it we weren't actively engaging with anyone right in person um so it was it was uh, the best of it was uh i'm on this side of town i can get supplies and get them and drop them on your porch um and someone would say okay cool uh i happen to have some toilet paper i need some meat 
uh, I will leave toilet paper on the porch if you will get meat. Um, but but what it degraded to 90% of the time was I need money for XXX or just I need money. Um, and who cares what it's for? You need money. Um, it's cool. The only way we have of transferring money right now, do you have Cash App or Venmo? And like, like that is itself a, a gatekeep, right? Because in order to transfer money, you need a uh, app on a cell phone tied to a bank account. Right. right. So, you know, what about... You already about... have to be capable of getting those <laughs> things, which all require, for example, permanent residences and things like that. Right. 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 Exactly. So, you know, even even our mutual aid structure uh, leaves a lot of people falling out the bottom. Uh, and that's an issue, right? <laughs> that's very much an issue, particularly in a pandemic when... Uh, <laughs> people falling out of the bottom of that uh you know this is this is always true but but it is so blatantly true during a pandemic that people falling out of the bottom of that damages everyone right right yeah right and puts Absolutely. us all at risk uh so yeah anyway well, I mean, you and you get back to the same thing that I was talking about with the like local officials who were turning people away, right? Like we created a culture, and I say we because it's it's all of us, right? Like right. created a culture that that said, well, everything's based on having a permanent residence. Right. This is what you have to have to be human, basically. Without that, you are not at least not really American, right? Because right. you can't participate in 95% of the things that other people do uh to maintain their lives right like you can't have a bank account you can't have a driver's license you can't have so all right you've already been sort of denied the concept of i of identification while as hairy and terrible as that com uh that concept is uh you still need it to do nearly everything in american society beyond basic like resource acquisition and disposition right like you can still go to the store despite what the president will say you can still go to yes. the store and buy food without an id yeah. but getting the money to buy that food is very difficult right because you can't be paid through any means but at someone handing you cash um that and that means that you have essentially been excluded from a majority of american life right and uh but that's a culture, right? Like, that's a decision that as a culture you don't have to make, right? Like, as a society, you could just say, well, that – you could just look at the idea of permanent resident and be like, well, that's not important. Or you can go the other direction, which is a weird one, but you could say everybody has a permanent residence and whether you like it or not, <laughs> which is a weird one, but it happens, right? You can just say, like, you you always have a permanent residence because it's, you know – and that's actually – as far as I – you know, that's – a way to deal with it. It's not ideal, but you know, you can do that too. I mean, but like the easiest way is just like say, fuck it. We don't need this idea anymore. Like who needs a permanent residence? You know, you can live in a place permanently, but right. the idea that you have to have some sort of registered documented permanent residence is right. a choice that we make. Uh Especially when one of the social benefits that requires proving a permanent residence is the providing of a permanent residence. Um, right. Providing yeah. Providing of a temporary residence, even. Right. 
Yeah, I mean, exactly. Like the whole system, like there, there's a reason why there's a specific ceiling that exists that once you fall under a certain, you bo- you fall below this certain ceiling, and it's you've cr- you've been put in a position where it's almost impossible to ever exit. Right. Right. Without somebody literally taking you out of it. Right. Because you 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 know once you don't have a permanent residence, and you have you don't have a permanent residence long enough. You become essentially ineligible for getting a permanent residence uh, in our in our society, which is right, right. Yeah. Now to get uh, yeah. to get back, <laughs> to, back to, to our movie, movie? <laughs> yeah, to get back sorry. to the movie, what what does get our characters beyond their humiliations is not a change of their social status. No, but the showing of grace to one another, right? Um, and that is not just true of Albert and Nan. That is true of Albert and the rest of the circus, right? Yeah. Um, you know, he's, it, well, right. He's he's really put things on the line through what he's through his actions in the third act, right? From the right. from the fight onward. Um, Killing the bear, yeah, that's that's gonna have repercussions. But right. Well, I mean, and the thing about it is, right, is that like they they get beyond their humiliations, in, in the sense that like they they choose to just they choose to move beyond them and and be uh, kind to each other, uh, but they are still r- essentially run out of town. I mean that that the, the, they are able to fix the the humiliation that they've done to each other, and even to a certain extent, fix the humiliation that some individuals suffered from the town, right? From people in the town, uh, in the sense that they can provide each other comfort, right? But the reality of the matter is, is that they're still essentially marched out of town, right? The the sort of greater all encompassing humiliation doesn't their kindness to each other can't fix. Right, their only solution is to just go somewhere else, right? Like, which is not a healing or even a moving past humiliation as much as it is a sort of just accepting trauma and 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 internalizing it and just changing locations, right? Which is a different thing, right? So, I mean, yeah, I mean, they are able to help each other, and that's it's a it's an interesting message for Bergman to have at the end, but. Very clearly, also, Berman points out the fact that, like, they can't heal the humiliation that they suffered at the hands of society for each other. Right. It's not a power they possess within each other to do. Right. So the uh, key, then, is to build a society where that power exists. But in building a society where that power exists, uh, you build a society where that power is uh, unnecessary, right? <laughs> So. Right. I mean, you, you, a society that where that power exists is is essentially a society where the power to do that humiliation doesn't exist. Right. Like right. It, you, you, the idea that they can that that town can run them out essentially that they yes. can humiliate them, stomp on them, and then run them out is a fundamental power that that town shouldn't possess. Um, and is key to their humiliation. And, yeah, they wouldn't need to possess the power to fight back against that because they wouldn't be able to be run out of town in the first place. Well, I think that's probably 
about all yeah, we have I to mean, say here. I yeah, because I, I, like you know, I mean, this movie I was happy. How do I? This is a weird phrase I'm going to say. I was happy to see that this movie reconnected it with our core competency. <laughs> yes. I, well, because I mean, it, 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 and so did Berlin Alexander plots for that matter. I mean, like it is, it is weirdly comfortable and nice when a, a film fits into our wheelhouse. Yeah. Uh, but that is to say our wheelhouse is a terrible place. Because <laughs> the movies that fit into our wheelhouse are always sad. And sometimes they have positive upswings and positive turns right. and, and work out for the best or at least work out not as bad as they could. Berlin Alexander Plots is in the same way as this a about a gentleman with uh uh <laughs> whose sympathies wane <laughs> pretty quickly um who is on who who is just marched through a series of humiliations berlin alexander plots is just much longer <laughs> yeah it is it is yeah basically this but and, longer and doesn't end on a note of redemption so no but Berlin Alexander plots specifically doesn't because it exists as a historical document, right? Whereas the historicity of this is um, a movie made in 1950 about, I suppose, a turn of the century traveling circus. Right, you I know, would guess yeah. it's kind of out of time, but but it is conspicuously out of time. So it's it's hard to say exactly when it's meant to take place uh, unless you have some sort of innate knowledge of uh, uh swedish canonry yeah swedish swedish civil uniforms <laughs> yeah uh but yeah it's yeah it, it, i like the idea that everybody in sweden knew exactly when this movie <laughs> took place right and then we're like oh right. it's impossible to tell no uh no phone lines but they're firing cannons into the ocean, right? So, so I mean, it actually, does so got to be a pretty clear time frame. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, this week we have been talking about sawdust in tinsel. Tinsel. I. Why is that a word I can't say? Uh, I'm fascinated because you think you couldn't say it, and it sounded fine to me. All right. This week we've been talking about sawdust in tinsel from uh, 1953. Directed by Ingmar Bergman and the first film he worked with Sven Nyquist on. Nyquist would be his cinematographer uh, for many years moving forward. Apparently Bergman actually put Nyquist through some sort of weird test. Uh, had him do... Oh, really? Bergman would do yeah. that? I can't believe it. Had him do a screen test at like 6am. <laughs> like, uh, Just shoot this, light this, do it until it's right. Um which Nyquist, of course, passed because he's Nyquist. He's, he's a brilliant very good at what he does. Yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, uh, but yeah, uh, it's uh, it's been great. Well, actually, there is one other thing. Maybe would we you, would... okay. I'm I was going to say though, really quick. Like, do you think that the main reason that we're watching this is because it's the first time they work together? Probably, right? It's possible, and it's part of the Criterion thing of pairs. Right? This movie is right. very much a a. Uh, a similar story to Berlin Alexander plots. Um, right. But what I wanted to say before we end is actually the, uh, 
you know, we watched many years ago, uh, Ingmar Bergman makes a movie, the documentary about the making of, uh, which one was it? Not winter light through, through a glass darkly. Um, and, uh, one thing that Cowie brings up in the commentary is that specifically the uh, the meeting in the circus tent between all of the circus performers and uh, the boss um, was very much reflective of how Bergman viewed the creative process of he is in charge, but everyone's input is welcome. Whether or not whether or not he actually takes it, which we saw, right, right. we saw we saw in various ways. Why I bring up Ingmar Bergman makes a movie is because we saw that play out in different ways, um, in, right? In that, um, you know, sometimes sometimes he gets into an argument with a cinematographer, and the cinematographer just does it anyway. <laughs> it's great, right. um, but yeah, ah. Uh, so that's uh, another interesting aspect of it is how much Bergman saw of himself in Albert and Bergman. Bergman had his own marital issues throughout his right. life. I believe he had three or four wives. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> it's uh, Bergman's problem was he kept he kept marrying women just as talented as he was, but in different fields. So <laughs> so then he got jealous. <laughs> right. Uh, well, and also, I mean, you can kind of like from, for example, Ingmar Bergman makes a movie. You, we got the impression that while yes, he likes input from other people, he also does seem difficult to work with, and you know that does tend to translate beyond. I mean, not difficult to work with. Like, um, I don't know how to describe it. We talked about it when we watched that movie, but like very specifically, like has a personality type that you could see like, mm, this could get annoying. Yeah. yeah. Um, you <laughs> Absolutely know. true. Absolutely true. Uh, anyway, to think of, you know, another thing, you know, that this movie kind of puts into context of, of a Swedish new wave and Bergman as an angry young man uh, style of director is, is kind of interesting too. You know, obviously he's making something very different, but with so much Bergman we've interacted with, it's such higher concepts in a way that the sort right, of kitchen right. sink. Uh, you know, he's 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 such a different contextually to me. He's so different from French New Wave, Italian New Wave, and what they're doing. But it is analogously what they're doing in his attacks right. on Swedish culture, right? It's just, right. it's, you know, something, something I've never consciously put into words either. So, right. Yeah. I mean, he definitely does have a different approach to how he wants to sort of take on Swedish right. culture. And I wonder if you just get to the, the reality that like those sort of like those sort of European new waves come from just a different place mentally right. than maybe. Uh, sort of Swedish and Nordic then, sort of thought processes for that. Then Bergman's Lutheran minister upbringing will right exactly will yeah. I mean, to, like yeah. just a really different like because you know when we talk about the French New Wave and stuff. We're just essentially talking about a bunch of critics who are like, I can do better. Yes, yes. Uh, well, I mean, there's a lot of other things I know, but like you know, right. It's always my mental uh, go-to for that. Yeah. So all of that, yes. Sawdust and Tinsel from 1953, directed by Amor Bergman. Thank you so much for listening to Lost in Criterion. 
I am, as always, Liam Glass. With me, as always, John Patrick Oetari Dorgan. Next week, we'll be talking about Kira Kurosawa's Drunken Angel from 1948. Oh, right, so we definitely yeah. look forward to that. Uh, until then, stay safe out there, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Listening to Lost in Criterion, hosted by John Patrick Oatari Dorgan and the Adam Glass, who edits it. We're a production of WithTwoBrains.com. Jonathan Hape does the music. Check him out at JonathanHape.bandcamp.com. And hey, if you like us, why don't you give us a review on iTunes, like us on Facebook, or support us on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash lost in criterion. We'd appreciate it.